Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Hello everyone, this is Grace, the community manager here at the StoryCraft Cafe, and I am so excited to announce that our cafe is now open for business. We opened on Friday and we had such a great time. Um, so many people showed up, there was great conversations happening in the community. Um, we had an amazing interview with Christopher Paolini. The recording from that is up so you can go look at it on the community. Uh, and I am just, I was just overwhelmed with the amount of support that we were shown. So if you want to be a part of this project um, and come hang out with us, you can find us at the Storycraft Cafe. That's S-T-O-R-Y dot C-A-F-E. Again, that's storycraft.cafe. We would love to see you, and I hope to see you there soon. Welcome to the Storycraft Cafe. We have a phenomenal show for you today with historical fiction writer Taylor Brown. This is from a live event that we had last Friday. So if you missed that, catch today's podcast. And then don't forget, this coming Friday, we have two live events at Storycraft Cafe. Go to storycraft.cafe and click on upcoming events, and you can be clued in when new events are coming and you can attend live. Before we get into today's show, we're going to hear from Ernest Klein talk about his original desire to be a screenwriter and how that eventually evolved into him being a novelist. Stay tuned. Craziest part of that story is almost like 10 years to the day uh, of uh, when I finished the script in like 2008. Kyle called me and said, we get to do the final sound mix of fanboys uh, with our original version and we get to do it at Skywalker Ranch. Uh, do, do you want to come? And I just, I, my head exploded. I know, right? So yeah, I, no, I, I, I don't want to come to that. <laughs> no, no, thank you. So I got to go to Skywalker Ranch and sit in the rooms where they, you know, had made all the original Star Wars films with, you know, Skywalker sound, sound technicians and watch them, you know, drop in, you know, R2-D2 sound effects and Millennium Falcon sound effects, you know, when the van takes off and, uh, 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 it was crazy. It was like the coolest experience uh, of my life. And, you know, they had like an alcove there with like original lightsabers and, you know, helmets from THX 1138. And it was just the coolest experience of my life. And then the movie, you know, came out uh, like 10 years after I had written it in uh, 2009. And, uh, uh, and it became, you know, a, a modest success in the theater. And then it became a cult film, just like we knew that it would, you know, because Star Wars fans, uh, 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 found out about it and embraced it. And so that was an amazing experience, but also like highs and lows. That 10 year experience of writing fanboys and then seeing it get made in the coolest way possible, but then also seeing it almost get ruined by Hollywood. That made me rethink my whole desire to want to be a screenwriter because I realized, you know, to make a movie, you need millions of dollars, uh, put up by a production company or a studio and people who do that, you know, view the film as a product and they want to sell it to as many people as they can because it's in a, it's a business investment for them. And so that, uh, experience made me want to try to write a novel to see, you know, what would happen if I could just, uh, tell a story exactly the way that I wanted to and, and not have anybody like geek out as much as I wanted to directly with, with the reader and not have anybody 
you know, tell me they didn't get it or tell me that they didn't, you know, that I was going overboard. I just wanted to see what could happen, you know, with with no barrier between between me and the reader. So that was what inspired me to write Ready Player One. And I had had this uh, idea of uh, for a while of uh, what if Willy Wonka had been a video game designer instead of a candy maker? And what if he hid his you know, what if he held his golden ticket contest inside his greatest video game creation? And uh, as soon as I had that idea, I knew it was onto something, but it wasn't until I started to think about what all these riddles and puzzles and clues that this game designer would leave behind to find a worthy successor, what would those be? And when I realized they could be, you know, about all his passions, you know, his favorite movies, his favorite rock songs, his, you know, his favorite video games, uh, and the way it would, the contest could be a way to pay tribute for all of that. And it could be a way for me to pay tribute to all those things while I was writing it and maintain my interest in the story while I was writing it. That all, you know, uh, allowed me to throw in all of my passions and everything into this fun, uh, action adventure story. And so that was, uh, uh, that became Ready Player One. And that was, uh, you know, I was inspired to do that because of my experience with fanboys. And then Ready Player One, when I finally finished it, I worked on it for a long time, you know, cause I was writing in my, in my spare time and I wasn't sure I would ever finish it. Sometimes I would set it aside for like five, six months and get frustrated and wonder if I was cut out to be a novelist because writing a novel is a lot harder than writing a screenplay. Uh, you know, it's a lot more words, a lot more pages, a lot more words on the page. Uh, but uh, uh, when I did finally finish it, I wasn't even sure I could, you could publish a book like this. I wasn't sure you could have Ultraman fight, you know, Godzilla, Becca Godzilla and with Voltron, you know, <laughs> in the background. I was sure you could do that and not get sued by everybody uh, that you mentioned. But it turns out you can. Uh, it's like fictitious use, uh, uh, fair use. And, uh, uh, and there was a, you know, uh, there was a bidding war over the... Uh, uh, over the book in, in the publishing world, which just shocked me. You know, not only could I get it published, but there was uh, everybody in, in New York, all the different big publishers were interested in publishing it. And because of that, that led to uh, all the movie studios getting interested. And the whole time I was writing Ready Player One, I was the one thing I was convinced of is that it could never be a movie. I was like, well, it was freeing to me. I'm like, I'll just write something that could never be a movie and right. not, not worry about it. And, uh, and But the next day, after I sold the, the book to Random House, I sold the film rights to Warner Brothers, you know, with me attached to write the screenplay. They had to they had to let me write the first few drafts of the screenplay if they wanted to buy the rights. So, uh, uh, so that was why suddenly it became my job to turn my unfilmable my unfilmable book into a screenplay. Um, but that, wow. uh, uh, but I did, you know, and since then uh, that's, you know, been a long development process, but that's gone. Sure. That's been the exact opposite of fanboys. It's just gotten more and more amazing, you know, with more and more talented, amazing people uh, involved to the point where now it's going to be a Steven Spielberg film, which is the craziest thing that has ever happened to me. I thought fanboys was, would be the peak, you know, getting to make a Star Wars movie and uh, uh, film it at Skywalker Ranch, but uh, that that would never be topped. But uh, it has been topped by, you know, getting to have uh, Steven Spielberg uh, adapt my my first novel. So uh, that's, that's kind insane. of the strange... Yeah, that's kind of the strange, circuitous path that I took from being a screenwriter to being a novelist. Welcome, everyone, to the StoryCraft Cafe. I'm your host, Hank Garner, and today I am super excited to have Taylor Brown with me. Taylor has a brand new novel which releases next week. It's called Wing Walkers. I have so many questions uh, about this book and about your process uh, today, Taylor. Taylor Brown grew up on the Georgia coast. His work has appeared in a wide range of publications, including the New York Times, The Rumpus, Garden and Gun, 
Chautauqua, the North Carolina Literary Review, and many others. He's the recipient of a Montana Prize in Fiction, a three-time finalist for the Southern Book Prize, and was named the 2021 Georgia Author of the Year. What what a great, uh, what an immense uh, honor that had to be. He's He's also been a finalist for numerous awards. He's the author of a short story collection in the season of blood and gold, as well as five novels, Fallen Land, The River of Kings, Gods of Howell Mountain, Pride of Eden, and his brand new book, Wing Walkers, which releases on Tuesday of next week. Taylor, an Eagle Scout, graduated from the University of Georgia in 2005. He settled in Savannah, Georgia, after long stints in Buenos Aires. San Francisco, and the mountains and coast of North Carolina. He's the editor-in-chief of BikeBound.com, and he likes old motorcycles, thunderstorms, and dogs with beards. And honestly, who doesn't love dogs with beards? I mean, true, come on. True. Right. <laughs> Taylor, after all of that uh, that glowing introduction, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Hank. I'm excited to have you. Um, Taylor, We we've been um, – I've had this question that I've asked – uh, various people as we get our conversation started over the last few weeks. And this has been a fun thing and it's, it's, uh, it's always fun to hear people's answers. Um, what is a piece of writing advice that you have received from someone? Uh, and maybe it's, it's a good piece of writing advice and you think back and, Oh, you know, I'm, this is something I'm going to use, or maybe it was a horrible piece of advice. And you look <laughs> back and you say, man, I'm so glad I didn't do that. Or I wish I wouldn't have, you know, lived by that piece of advice. Right. Do you have anything that comes to mind? I've probably tried to forget all the bad ones as best I can. Um, the one that I kind of live by and go back to a lot comes from uh, Georgia writer Harry Cruz, who uh, said, put your ass on the chair is the way he put it. Uh, I think of it as just get in the chair. I've heard it yeah. come in both ways, but um, you know, that was something that, that Harry said that didn't matter, you know, how talented you were, what education you had, what mentorship you had, what anybody in a workshop said, anything all that mattered, what mattered most was that you got in that chair and wrote, and that's how you got better. And that's how anything ever got done. So I've kind of lived by that mantra for a long time and continue to do so. And that really is my, I would say, foundational mantra, you know? Well, and that leads to another piece of advice that, that we hear touted a lot. And it's been uh, attributed to a number of people that I've heard over the years is that it's easier to edit uh, a bad page than a blank page. Uh, Absolutely. You know, and, and that comes from putting your butt in the chair and, you yep. know, it, it, it has to come from doing the work. And if you don't do the work in, in some form or fashion, then nothing comes of it. But so um, I love that. That's fantastic. Um, Taylor, have you, have you ever gotten a piece of bad advice? that that you uh you know look back on and say that had nothing to do with with writing or publishing and um you know maybe some things that stick out that are um you know kind of that get reiterated more and more that just really don't have anything to do with anything that's a really good question for me personally not a whole lot um you know a lot of people are big on doing some kind of uh I think it's just you, it's part of it is finding what works for you. So I can't think of any advice that I think is just bad bar none categorically. Right. Yeah. I know that there are things that don't work for me, 
right? Like um, doing character sketches or a lot of outlining, that's never really worked well for me. Every time I try to do that, um, I just end up with uh, a story or characters that seem kind of wooden. It takes the life out of it. Um, I say that it would make my life a lot easier sometimes if I outlined, you know, my book. So I knew exactly <laughs> yeah. where we're going the whole time. On the other hand, I know really successful authors that, you know, live by that outline and right. that they can't even conceive of getting a book done without that outline. And they write amazing books. So, um, you know, it's not bad advice for them, but every time someone, uh, especially early on kind of pushed me to do that, I had a, uh, it didn't come out the way that I wanted it to. Well, speaking of that, because, you know, as writers, we love to place ourselves and everyone around us in one of two camps. They're either plotters or they're pantsers. And you, right. you either plot out everything ahead of time or you write by the seat of your pants. Um, what I've discovered is that most people are it, it, some variation of a mix of the two. Right. Uh, I, for one, um, I, I like to write a story first to kind of discover my characters and to discover the world that they're living in. And, and then after I've kind of written by the seat of my pants to kind of figure those things out, then the story starts to unfold for me and I can write down kind of what I see are upcoming plot points and things that I can write toward. But I start off as kind of a pantser, you know, that, that I, I don't know anything and I don't know enough to plan yet, but as I do, it, it starts, it starts kind of unlocking. Or do you find yourself like going, you say that you're a pantser, but are you a true pantser? I, w I don't know that I'm a true pantser. I would say that it really stuck out to me when you said you write a story first, because yeah. a number of my novels have started with a short story. Now, I didn't do that on purpose. I just wrote the short story and then realized that there was more here or that I wasn't finished with the story. And that has been, honestly, Fallen Land started with a short story, my first novel. And I actually used that short story as the first chapter of the book. I decided to just keep going. I had read that Ron Rashid did that with a story called Speckled Trout, which he um, just built into uh, a world made straight. And so I thought, well, hell, I'm going to try the same thing. This kind of has a similar type ending to the story where the character is in a pickle and let me see if I can get him out of this. Right. Yeah. And so I just kept going. And then uh, the River of Kings started with a short story. Uh, Gods of Howl Mountain and Wing Walkers did not, but Pride of Eden started with a short story. And so I do feel like, one, I love short stories. I don't write them as much as I used to. I used to, you know, that was really my apprenticeship was writing short stories, mm -hmm. minimum, trying to get them published. Um, but I have found that that is an amazing way to really discover your characters. And a short story typically, you know, is always you're a pantser with it, right? A lot of the right. time, I mean, most of the short story writers I know, you don't really know where they're going. You don't have to because right. you only have, you know, 10 or 15 pages. Or if you know where you're going, you don't probably don't know what's going to happen, you know, where you start or what's going to happen in between, right? Um, so I have found that that is uh, a really good way to flesh out a lot of big parts of a book. Speaking of short stories, um, one of my favorite writers of all time is Ray Bradbury, mm -hmm. and and he was uh, uh, he was adamant that new writers especially should write short stories, and he said, you know, write uh, a new story every week, mm -hmm. um, and for a year, and at the end of it, 
um, surely you can't write 50 bad stories, <laughs> you right. know, yeah. just kind of tongue in cheek. But it, it also um, speaks to the, the fact that sometimes just doing the work over and over again makes you better. Um, how do you feel about the form of the short story versus the form of the novel? I'll say uh, two things. One, I really agree with what he's saying with just doing it. I have always yeah. thought that like a lot of things, you know, you just get better from doing it. I mean, it's sheer right. force of will and discipline, you know, to some degree, you just, you just get better from doing it like most things. So I, I definitely believe in that. I love short stories. Um, but I have found that the, um, I struggled a little bit more than I expected to with the step from, I tried to, I tried to take how I wrote short stories and write a book that way a couple of different times to have that level of compression that a short story has to have, to have that level of every single sentence standing out. And it did not translate as well to the longer form. Um, the longer form just has to be a little bit looser to me. And, um, you know, you exhaust someone with that level of intensity that a short story someone ha sometimes has if you try to do it for 300 pages. So right. I did find it harder to um, to transfer from from my having a primary focus on short stories, which I did at one time, to having more of a primary focus on novels. It wasn't as fast of a transition. That said, I, I mean, I love short stories. I still think they're the way to go, the way to start. It's a way to get your name out there too. It's a way to discover all kinds of different characters. And honestly, when we're starting out, usually most of us, I know me, I mean, I wasn't very good. So yeah. you, know, you can get a lot of short stories done and how, you know, yeah. like saying, you know, and, and have some ones that aren't good and it's okay. It doesn't take as much time as, as, as spending years on a book that's not good, which I also did a couple of times. And maybe you have to do that sometimes too. But um, so I think that there's something to be said for that part of it. Yeah. Um, one thing that I love to uh, to hear people talk about is um, this idea of uh, of a sense of place and how place affects the stories that you tell. Um, you were born in Georgia. You live in, in Georgia now, but you've lived all over the world uh, in the intervening mm -hmm. years. Um, but there's something about the Georgia soil that has kind of seeped into who you are and your soul as a storyteller, if you will. Um, and, and your, your book wing walkers, um, it, you know, when it, it deals with, uh, with William Faulkner, who, you know, I'm from Mississippi, William Faulkner is a huge hero and, and Mississippi literature and, and you know, literature in general, but, you know, we, we hold pretty tightly to, to William Faulkner. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that sense of place comes through in that. How do you feel like you as a Georgia storyteller specifically, maybe a Southern storyteller uh, in, in general, um, how, how does that come out in your work? I think that um, there's certainly something about the landscape and I certainly speak, you know, I le lived a long time in, in San Francisco um, in my twenties and I've really never said anything out there. It just didn't, for some reason, it didn't speak to me the way that, that, home did you know yeah and i think that there is something about um you know that we always talk about southern writers and do do people want to be called southern writers and why aren't northern writers called northern writers and right. you know all these all these things that are actually kind of oh, fun yeah. to talk about um but you know to me the south one 
there's the landscape you tend to unless you're out west i mean a lot of places have more rural but but there is a yeah. lot of rural landscape still around in the south and then there are just so many interesting uh dichotomies and contrasts and all those things in the south whether it be you know uh rural versus urban or you know um just you know racial tensions history the sense of people gripping on to certain parts of the past and then other parts you know really looking to the future so i think there's something about you know that that just the south seems like such a a, a melting pot of all these different things that it continues to draw me back to it and then the yeah. landscape itself i mean i think it is partly too you know, it's just what I know largely and what I've grown up around. Um, I do find myself drawn back to, um, you know, I grew up largely on the coast. Um, and my novel Gods of Howl Mountain was set in the mountains in North Carolina. And, you know, I couldn't have done that if I hadn't gone and lived there um, for a while um, to be able to do it. So I usually do feel like I have to have spent a good amount of time, you know, somewhere to to be able to to capture it like I want to. Gotcha. Um, speaking of, of Southern storytellers, because that is a, uh, a genre or a designation or whatever that, that does get made. And, and we never talk about new England writers right. or, uh, mid, uh, maybe Midwestern writers, some, um, but what is it that makes a Southern writer, a Southern writer, other than, you know, ha having your, your toes in the soil, you know, at some point, what, what, what designates what makes these stories have a life of their own? That's a good question. I mean, I think that there's so many different ways to define that and, and look at it. I mean, you can say that anyone that is writing something that's set in the South or is from the South could somehow, you know, be a Southern writer. I do think that when you think of stories that seem especially Southern, there seems to be a focus on the way people speak. If you think of like everyone from Flannery O'Connor, Larry Brown, Eudora Welty, they had such an ear for the, for uh, the way people speak. And there are so many different uh, accents in the South. You know, of course, if you're from outside mm -hmm. of the South, you think that everyone sounds like Texas baby or something. Doesn't even right. South or sounds like some Mississippi accent that hasn't existed in a hundred years. Right. 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 Um, but it, it is, there are so many little accents within the South, within every state and within every section of every state. I think that Southern writers tend to have a really good ear for that. You know, there tends to be a, a, lots of times a focus on some of the things that have just stayed so important in the South, like, you know, religion and family the past versus the present, you know, uh, an agricultural uh, past versus in a more urban industrial future, you know, th the clash of those things um, that we've, you know, uh, really saw in the last, um, you know, a hundred hundred years or so. So right. I think all of those elements are certainly, you know, part of it. There's that whole Gothic thing, you know, the whole, uh, so many Southern writers, whether it's, you know, uh, Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor have this gothic element, this, you know, right. their characters almost grotesque um, that or people think that. And then you just, you know, live in Savannah for for a few <laughs> weeks and, you know, Flannery O'Connor's characters might not seem so crazy. Right. So, right. You know, um, exactly. All of that might be uh, might be part and parcel of it. Yeah. Um, Taylor, there there's something um, magic that happens uh, around storytelling and um 
it, it's one of those intangible things that that's hard to describe and you can't quite put your finger on it. But at one moment in time, nothing about wing walkers existed in any form or fashion. It just, it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And, and then you either, you know, stumble on some little weird historical fact or something, or maybe a character walks onto the stage of your mind and, and then you're like, who is this character? And then they start speaking and, and you, you've got to know more about them and, 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 or something happens and it triggers something. And then in some form or fashion, wing walkers does exist. And then it's your job as the writer to excavate that story and to dig it out and to, to know these characters. And there's, it's, it's a weird magic. I, I don't know how else to explain it, but you know, storytelling is, is, I, I don't know how to explain it. What what is that first moment of creation like for you? And is it different for you know this is your fifth novel? Mm-hmm. Has it been different every time? Does it begin uh, similarly or kind of talk about that moment of creation? The uh, you used a couple words that I just have to say I love like excavating it because it always has felt to me a lot of the time when I'm working on something it feels like I'm uncovering something that's already there right. And it, almost just my job to do the best job I can of excavating it. Something I've discovered, you know, underneath the surface, it's like the bones of a dinosaur and it's my job to, you know, find out where all the other pieces are and how it all goes together, you know, and, and and trying to, 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 to take those pieces where that are unclear, you know, covered and, and, you know, try to, to assemble it or something. So it, 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 it's this weird, you're totally right. There's this weird magic. And the way that things just seem to come together, you know, you just yeah. trust, especially if you're a pantser and you don't do a lot of outlining, you just trust that it all comes together and it just, it somehow does. For me, I would say that the, that point of origin um, is not always the same necessarily. Um, I trace it back with this, with wing walkers to, um, I can, I kind of go back to one moment that really is a seminal moment for me, which took place in Mississippi in square books in Oxford, in Oxford. Yeah. I was there in 2016 for the Oxford conference for the book. I was on, it was my first ever book tour for fallen land. I was, I say I was in this kind of strange state because I gotten sick uh, mm-hmm. on my night up there. I'd been on tour and I got food poisoning. And then I barely made it through my event at the, uh, at, you know, Oxford conference for the book. And then the next day I finally felt better, but I was in this weird kind of like post fever glow yeah. and I had a few days off. So it was kind of like, uh, you know, but everything just <laughs> lighter. I don't know. It's just so strange, but I seem kind of out of it. Anyways, I'm just hanging out in square books. It's my first time there. And for anyone who doesn't know, the walls are just covered in all this kind of literary oh, yeah. material. And um, I saw on the staircase landing, I haven't been back in a couple of years, I'm sure it's still there, but there's a, a, a shadow box and it has a picture of Faulkner in it. But mm-hmm. it's not the Faulkner that we're used to seeing with, you know, the pipe and someone who looks like they won the Nobel Prize. He's right. Really young. You know, he looks like he's just out of his teens. He's uh, wearing his RAF uniform. He's got, you know, his flying cap cocked on bold. He's got his rattan cane. He's got a cigarette sticking out the corner of his mouth. And there were some other items in there. There was like a striped regimental tie and some RAF wings and a sketch of a World War One biplane done in his hand. And that is the moment for me that really started Wingwalkers because a couple things happened. One, it, it gigged my memory because I remembered that in a lot of Faulkner's early work, there was a lot of 
just aerial aviation. There were pilots, there were fighter pilots, yeah. stunt pilots, barnstormers, test pilots, all this stuff. Flags in the dust. Last Sardis had that. A bunch of the short stories, and it kind of brought that up because I was always interested in that aspect. And then also for me, I grew up, my dad was a pilot and I grew up loving airplanes. I say that I was uh, a waffle belly growing up because you go to the airport and you'd watch the airplanes take off and land and you lean against the fence. And, you know, if you do it long enough, it imprints itself on your, on the, you know, the oh, chain. So funny. Yeah. Um, and so I just wanted to know more about this part of Faulkner's life. So I started just digging in, you know, looking at biographies, memoirs from his, uh, brothers and family members and i was just it was just one thing after another where i felt like i was almost uncovering buried treasure because i hadn't you know i mean there were just all these stories you know the book yeah. starts based on a true uh story when uh this every year at the fair that they would have down on the square in oxford mm -hmm. they would have what they called the balloonatic would come which this guy had a homemade hot air balloon i mean we're talking like 1908 right and he wow. pumped it up with a coal oil fire and then he would go up in it and then he would parachute out of it with a homemade parachute. It's not like you could buy a homemade parachute in 1908. And uh, he, only in Mississippi. Yeah. He landed on the Faulkner's, um, on the Faulkner's hen house and smashed it up when he oh, came wow. down one year. And then their dad almost got, you know, their dad came out with a pistol and everything, right? Because the guy was all <laughs> cursing and their mom was in the house hearing him curse, you know, and the hogs were going wild. And so, um, you know, I just started finding all these stories. And then, uh, of course, Faulkner went off to want to be, you know, he wanted to, during the Great War, he wanted to be a fighter pilot. And so he goes off to um, join the RAF. And there's all these stories behind it. It's how he added a U to his name because he thought he needed to be a British citizen. He thought Faulkner with a U in it would look more uh, like he was a British citizen and he, and he affected an accent, you know. Oh, goes off the cadet wing. We think he doesn't grad, you know, he doesn't graduate. The war ends. He probably never soloed there. Comes back to Oxford in a uh, an officer's uniform, telling all these stories about his flying exploits, right? And so it's just, I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? So right. it was just a wealth, right? And so I just felt like I was onto something, but I wasn't sure what that story was going to be because I didn't want to just write some you know, almost nonfiction or fictionalization of Faulkner's life told from right. perspective. But I had ideas for other characters already cooking. So like barnstormers had always interested me. And then, so there was that moment when I saw that photo. And then in his biography, there was a second moment. Uh, and the Blotner biography of Faulkner, which is kind of like the big definitive one, chapter 36, I found out that he went to um, opening of the Shushan Airport in New Orleans in 1934, which was this big to-do. They were, thought it was going to be a new air hub of the Americas. It was during Mardi Gras. And that was like conquest of the air was the theme for Mardi Gras. And right. in his biography, he didn't come home one night. And then he comes, shows up the next morning, uh, hung over, and he tells this tale of hanging out with this husband and wife barnstormers uh, all night. And we don't know what he did with them and what that tale was. He just told this tale over breakfast, this wild tale of spending the night with them. <laughs> and there's no other information about it. So I decided to reimagine who they were and how their lives, you know, intersected with Faulkner's at that time. So that was really the, the, you know, the, the creation process of, of the novel. So when I first saw the novel and I started reading about it and then um, started reading through the arc, I was I was really intrigued. And, um, you know, historical fiction is really uh, having a heyday um, mm -hmm. right now. And 
Um, one thing that that I that I really wanted to ask you was, uh, we have real people in this book, people that we can point to, and we know all sorts of things about yeah. these people. William Faulkner, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's lots and lots published about Faulkner, and he's not an unknown entity, right? And this is a, a time period that is also not an unknown entity. Mm-hmm. We know lots and lots about this time period. How do you take a a real life person that we know all sorts of things about and place them in in a real life um, setting that we know a lot about and then write fiction around that? Um, right. wh- wh- what are some of the boundaries that you set for yourself um, to write about these real people in real times and real places, but then allow your imagination to allow you to novelize these these real places and and i guess what separates um historical fiction from alternate history it's a good question i think that to a large degree these aren't things that i during the writing process itself it's interesting to talk about you know it's interesting to talk about it now but during the writing process itself so much of it is done in some ways intuitively so much of it is done like I wouldn't do it unless I felt right doing it when I tried doing it, right? unless I felt drawn to it. And I felt somehow in some way that's hard to articulate that I was, although I know that I'm not telling the truth, so to speak, with the tap, capital, yeah. that I am not, you know, transcribing all these moments in Faulkner's life. These may not be the exact thoughts he had. It felt right to me in a way that's hard for me to um to validate, to, to bring yeah. any evidence for why it would or, or why I would feel that way. All I know that is if I didn't feel that way, it wouldn't have gotten written. I literally wouldn't have been able to do it, right? right. I have found this interest. It started for me with uh, my book, The River of Kings, has an artist in it, this French artist, Jacques Lemoyne, who is the first European artist in what will become North America. He was French. He, um, in a lot of his paintings, either survived or he redid after he got back to France. And he was the first, I think, real life character that I uh, put into a book and told things kind of from their perspective. Um, And it fascinated me. Now there's very little, there's much less known about him than Faulkner. We're talking about someone is a celebrity versus someone who's an unknown, but it did make me interested in, in doing it with a, with someone else, you know, someone that I had, I had always felt a kinship with, which I had felt a, a kinship with Faulkner just because I had enjoyed his work from an early age. There, there weren't, you know, there was probably nobody else in my entire school, if not my entire county where I grew up, that felt, you know, that it was liking reading Faulkner when they were 18 years old that much. Yeah. Right. You know, um, just to be honest. Uh, yeah. And um, and then with the flight, the eight, his love of aviation, which I also had, you know, it just felt right to me. Mm-hmm. There were just, you know, as I got deeper into his character, there were just, I felt like I could, I could do it. And so I just, I did, you know, I didn't, it's interesting because I think since I've done this and talked to some other, other authors that have done something similar, everyone does it differently. Like my Faulkner, his life as described in the book stays pretty dang close to what I could come across in the biographical record. Right. So it's kind of like you hear the story that might be one sentence, right. Or it might just be, Mm -hmm. I could take that one sentence and make it a whole scene or 
there might be one scene in some, you know, like in a memoir from his brother or in his biography, this, you know, of something that happened. And then I could blow that up into a whole chapter or multiple chapters. And I think what separates it too, is that you are getting inside their, um, you know, you're getting inside their head, which biography does to some degree, um, creative nonfiction does to some degree, but you're doing it a lot more. Um, and, but I did really try to stay true to somehow capture the spirit of who he seemed to me at these times in his life. You know, that isn't to say that it's right, but it was right for me at the time and felt, and it felt right. And I also did want, if Faulkner was able to read it, to get a kick out of it. Too. Yeah. Well, I didn't yeah. want to do something that was like disrespectful or something like that. Cause I do, uh, you know, revere him. And there was, but he was the character. And, yeah, and yeah, that's got to come out. Little rascal, you know, and people yeah. don't realize that. And yeah. uh, I loved all the modernists, right? Like that was, I started reading all these modernists at a formative time in my life, you know, Hemingway and Virginia Woolf and stuff. And a lot of the, like, the male modernists were kind of, I mean, they were, they were jerks, right? You know, right. You never right. Knew, you know? and, and Faulkner, although he told all these tall tales, was kind of a lovable, lovable, lovable rap scallion, you know, that, right. Uh, no one really realizes that, I don't think. And I think I wanted to communicate that too, you know? And and I love it. I love it. But um, does immersing yourself in this person or in this place or, or, or whatever your topic is um, beforehand, does that then give you the freedom um, when you're writing to – uh, to not be so worried about the details because you you already kind of filled your mind with with who they were and um, you know that y- you would think uh, that some people might um, have a hard time that that you may break the flow of writing by you know going to look something you know did I get this detail right you know and, and maybe stressing about those but if if you immerse yourself in them ahead of time does it just kind of give you the freedom to to write more freely about it i think it's such a balance because if you yeah. overdo it at first you can't write anything because you know mm. too much that you True. stop yourself every time you try to start and Nina de gramont is a friend of mine and she just wrote uh or just came out with this book the christie affair about agatha christie and yes. she tried to do something similar with emily dickinson but she pre-researched it so much that she couldn't do it because she knew too much almost right so this time she let herself uh go in the other direction a little bit and i think there is some level of for me i feel like i'm in sometimes like i have to download a certain amount of information that's like root level information in my brain like in the matrix when they have to like learn kung fu and they plug in you know, and like 30 seconds later, they're like, mm, and they, <laughs> they know how to fly a helicopter or they know, right? right. So there is some level of, obvi- obviously it takes longer than that, but like reading and getting this base level of information. But I tend to look stuff up as I'm going along, or I, I would kind of research all about one aspect and work on that, but not everything of what's going to come all down the line, right? And then I would go search out what I needed next. It, it is a balance because I think you can overdo it on the one hand, but you have to have that kind of base knowledge, like you're saying, to 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 be able to do it at all, to have enough right. knowledge to write and not have to stop every single sentence to figure out, you know, what something you don't know, I guess. Right. 
Um, the the book not only focuses on on Faulkner as we mentioned, but this couple, mm-hmm. these these barnstormers and and the Wing Walker, where the the title of the book comes from. Um, you you alternate narratives throughout the book. Um, what was the uh, when did you decide that that this needed to have alternating viewpoints? And then as a writer, how do you start? structuring out the the writing of the different viewpoints and 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 who's gonna give a view into this and who's gonna give a view into that and um can you just talk a little a little bit about you know when you start perceiving that uh that you do need to have different um points and and how you kind of segment those out absolutely i think that in this book particularly i didn't want i wanted You'll notice that the Faulkner chapters are shorter, mm-hmm. and I wanted those to kind of be more like glimpses, and I because I didn't want to overdo it with Faulkner. I wanted to keep this little bit of magic there with him, and not and just have have us more have glimpses. And so the bulk of the book already I knew had to come from the other characters, and I just like the idea of going back and forth, weaving the story as they get closer and closer. One challenge that I had was that in this book, at least. Those two storylines, Faulkner does not actually physically cross paths with the other characters until probably three quarters away through the book. And nor do they stay together for that long. So the two storylines have to be speaking to each other without actually touching, if that makes sense. And that was something that I first really experimented with in uh, The River of Kings. Um, and the River of Kings has a contemporary storyline. And then there are three storylines, but mainly there's two. There's a contemporary storyline with two brothers on the Altamaha River. And then there's that French artist I was talking about, which is 500 years before that. So those storylines go back and forth, but they're never going to actually touch, right? They're too far apart. And so in that, I had played with this idea of the way to make viewpoints and chapters speak to each other, have let them have echoes, especially the way that one chapter ends and another one starts. So for this book, there would be things like Faulkner, as a lot of young men of his era, when the World War One, or as they called it, the Great War started, mm-hmm. they had this very glorified idea of, of war and what going off to that war. Right. Your honor and, you know, to die for your country is the sweetest thing and all this. And they didn't realize what a absolute cataclysmic nightmare that that war was going to be. And, sure. um, so Faulkner, we really have records of him working on some poems that were, had this ace in them, right? This ace that was like this glory, you know, like the way the light hits him as he gets up at dawn mm-hmm. on his dawn patrol, et cetera, et cetera. And so for instance, like a chapter would end with Faulkner working on that poem. And then the next chapter would start and you'd have Zeno who was a real World War One ace who's dealing with all kinds of trauma. And the next chapter starts and here's Zeno throwing up in the morning because right. he had too much the night before, right? And this is not uncommon for him. Get what I'm saying? And so they mm-hmm. speak to each other pretty clearly and yet without touching, right? And it is a part in Faulkner's life. Faulkner's first novel, ends up, Soldier's Pay, ends up having that ace from his poetry be this, you know, almost blinded and coming home. And you know what I'm saying? He, he yeah. goes, Faulkner himself must have and go th- went through this idea of, you know, all, all the glory that was not the glory that anyone thought, right? So, um, and then here we are with Zeno that's almost some character like that down 10 years down the line. So, um, 
but in terms of deciding how I do it, it just felt like the right way to just go back and forth. And if you're going to have both elements in there, they had to, um, you had to keep them pretty close for them to be able to make sense. So you had to kind of go back and forth is what it felt like to me. Um, sure. But literally, to be honest, I mean, I remember talking to my mom on the phone about it, trying to work it out, you know, in like 2016. You know, like, just me, you know, try to talk this out. And right. she's been listening to me tell stories to her since I was five, you know, chasing her around the house with my GI Joe. So it was, you know, she, that's funny. Um, you know, God bless her, you know. Yeah. So as a uh, someone who is a self-professed pantser, um, when y- your stories are so have such intricate uh, timelines and uh, and the viewpoint switches and, and things like that, how do you manage um, what you're writing? And and it, you know, a, a friend of mine who is a diehard plotter, he mm-hmm. says everyone's a plotter. He said you may plot after your first draft, you know, and then take all the pieces that you've written and figure out how they fit together. Um, or you may do it before you ever start writing, but everyone's going to do the work of a plotter at, at one point or another. What what do you think about that? I think that's an interesting point, but I would say that, you know, this book would probably speak against that in that, mm. I mean, sure, when I've gone back through the drafts, you are kind of connecting the dots a little more. You're tightening things up. You are changing the way some things work plot-wise to work better but I didn't restructure the book from the original drafts completely restructure it. Um, and nor have I really done that, um, that much in the past. Um, but I think I'm plotting as I go along. It's just, I'm not plotting the whole thing. I'm just, right. plotting. I know what's going to happen if I'm on a chapter, I'm, I have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen, you know, in the yeah. next chapter after that, it's like yeah. the old doctor Al said, uh, and I go back to this a lot. He said, writing is like writing a novel is like driving at night. Um, you can only see 500 feet ahead, but you can get the whole way there. And right. So that's the way that I kind of think of it. Yes, I am plotting. I'm just plotting this much, you yeah. know, at a time, not the whole, you know, the whole thing. Right. Um, so that probably is what's happening with me. Cause I do have a pretty good idea as I'm going through what's the next couple steps are, you know? Yeah. And then it well, gets if- vaguer and vaguer as you go farther out, probably, you know? Right. Right. And and I may know that I'm going to Savannah, and but I may not know if I'm going to go through Atlanta or not. You know, right. there, there, there's there there there's lots of options, and exactly. you know, depending on what the what the journey presents, mm-hmm. uh, may dictate the uh, the path that's taken. That's um, Partly, right? I mean, when the yeah, you discuss the characters act in ways that you didn't think that they would, which is what real people do, or things happen in the story that you didn't think right. were. Which is how life works, you know. So, to yeah. me, that is, you know, helps the the story really feel alive and and you know, like it has a a beating heart to it. Right, um, Taylor. Uh, throughout our conversation, you have mentioned um, other writers uh, quite a bit, and you know, here at the Storycraft Cafe community is. Uh, is one of the most important things that a writer needs in in his or her life um, for for a a number of reasons. But what does community mean to you? I have realized how much it means so much more, honestly, since the pandemic, because I think that I didn't realize how good and how important it is to 
just be able to talk to and share with other writers because we live a fairly solitary existence. A lot of, I mean, even, I mean, a lot of people in my, that I see every day don't even know that I'm really a writer or have no idea to what, how seriously I'm doing it. Right. Right. Um, And I think that's true for a, a lot of writers. We're spread out. The internet and things has helped us to be able to form communities that we didn't have before, but we just had, for the first, we had the Savannah Book Festival here in February, and that was the first time I've gone to a festival or a conference or anything in in two years. And if you were to ask me before that, do I like going to these things? I would say, yeah. I mean, I like going to them, but it, I don't like. Yes, you know, there's a festival, right. and I felt so dang good after that thing, just getting to talk to some other authors and just to share some of the same challenges, some of the same highs and lows, to commiserate about certain things, to all of that, I realized, God, how much I missed it. And it really yeah. filled up my well in a way that I um, I didn't realize I needed. And I'm so excited I'm going to go, you know, I'm getting to go on book tour for this book because I'm going to get to see, you know, both writer and reader and bookseller friends that's all the similar type of thing, you know, that yeah. – um, Cause you know, I, I'm pr- fairly introverted most of the time. So I don't seek out a whole lot of, you know, company in everyday life necessarily, but I think it's so important as a, as a writer to have some sense of community in the old days, all these writers, they wrote letters to each other. Right. Which I think yeah. is a beautiful thing um, that I kind of wish we still did, but it, man, it's hard to sit down and, you know, <laughs> it's hard enough to get enough writing done. Right. And then to write right. beautiful letters like they used to, you know, uh, yeah. and email doesn't seem quite the same, but um, I, I think that it is. It's really important. Well, I I think that a lot of writers would consider themselves uh, introverts, and uh, maybe people that that are not introverted don't understand that it. It's not that you don't need human interaction at all. It's that you you fill your well up, like you said, and then you know, you're able to then sustain yourself on that and, and, and then go back and fill that up. But it's not a, a daily need necessarily, but, uh, but yeah, I I think a lot of people understand that, that sentiment for sure. (laughs) Wing Walkers is your fifth novel and you've had a short story collection also published. Um, How do you feel like that you have grown and changed as a writer throughout the course of these five novels and short story collections do you where you see yourself now um how do you compare that to the writer that wrote that first novel that's a good question i think that i am less um i think that my prose has grown in the sense that i used to put so much into every single line it almost i was probably almost like i was trying to show off i wasn't doing that i was doing it for myself because i love language and those kinds of things but i think i've you know, streamlined it, cleaned it up, been able to focus on, um, refocus on the character and the story and the voice of the characters less than the voice of the narrator, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, I think that there's something with that. I think that, um, I don't know, you know, I'm not sure in the different ways that, that I've grown. I guess I don't, I try not to overanalyze myself and my work too much in that way. Um, but I do think that, you know, um, the other thing that I found is that um, I have, you know, you get older, you get a little bit wiser. I found a lot of, you know, 
ways of doing research and mm -hmm. I know what's going to work for me and what's not down the line that, that um, certain things happening in a story that I might feel pulled towards, I just know isn't going to work somehow or something, you know, I think that you just develop a little bit more of a, um, uh, you know, the, that gut instinct, that intuition, you know, I think yeah. it's kind of a developed thing for the story and for what it works and what doesn't and what resonates and what doesn't. Sure. Um, just like a more clear eyed focus on moving toward what burns bright, what resonates, what has meaning, what, does that make sense versus kind of writing and, and, and trying to just come across it as you, as you do. Does that make sense? Maybe a little bit slower and I'm not just running through the woods. I'm like walking through the woods more slowly, paying more attention and I can find, you know, the campfire that I'm looking for better than just <laughs> you know, right. find it. Uh, which right. maybe that seems like what I did a little bit more early on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Taylor, if we know anything about uh, the publishing industry, it's a uh, a bit of a slow burn sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, Wing Walkers comes out this week uh, in, in just a few days now, um, meaning that it must have been off of your desk for the better part of a year, uh, yep. probably. Um, so since you turned it in and now... Um, surely you've been working on something else. What What's occupying your imagination these days? That's so, well, it's funny you bring that up. because I was just talking, I was up at the bookstore signing some uh, books this morning. We were talking about the same thing, that it's so strange because, you know, I finished the first draft of Wing Walkers in 2017. And then it right. has, I, I shared a quote yesterday with copy edits. It was really a year ago. So it really has been about a year. It's been yeah. off the desk. And to me, that seems like kind of a gift because if it was that new, it would, you know, the criticism and all that, both, both, both good credit, you know, both praise and, you know, harsh criticism would both, right. you know, bring you up and down that much more, which can yeah. kind of be tough, you know, when you're, when you're going through it. So it gives you like this little bit of, for me, it gives me a little bit of like a psychic buffer zone, you know? So yeah. it's kind of like, uh, you know, whatever happens, I can like not get it all big in my head about it if it's good. And I don't get all down about it because it's bad because my, I've been occupied with other stuff, you know? Right. Um, I don't want to talk too much about what I'm working on because it's, um, I'm kind of excited about it. And I, um, that's good. It's one of those stories though, that's kind of like out there that, you know, someone else might come across. Um, so like a scoop, you know, so I'm kind yeah. of, uh, but I've been working on something for a while now that's set, uh, in West Virginia and, okay. uh, you know, with the coal mining background and all that kind of stuff, um, that I am, um, that I'm really into and uh, starting to get close on hopefully, you know, having a manuscript ready to uh, submit to my editor. And okay. then, uh, and then something besides that, which is a little bit different uh, for me. Um, we spent, we did a big trip out West um, last summer with it. We have an old camper van that we got and um, nice. somehow it survived, you know, a big <laughs> uh, uh, trip out there. And I just always loved it out there. And there, um, and so I'm kind of got this uh, contemporary, more like almost like a contemporary Western I've been working on, but with a nice. bit of a naturalistic, not naturalistic, environmental uh, slant to it. Um, okay. Outside of the South, um, I think that that might be on the one hand, you know, it's like a little bit of a stretch because publishers seem to want you to just, you know, reproduce something, oh, yeah. you know, something that's not too far off from what works before. And I'm not really one of those writers that does that. Um, 
But, um, you know, some of us Southern writers or writers based out of the South complain about having a hard time breaking out of the South. So I figure you got to put your money where your mouth is and set something a little bit farther out if you want yeah. to move farther out, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Wing Walkers releases Tuesday um, in just a, just a few days. And uh, it, it's going to be available in hardcover or Kindle edition or audiobook. Have you listened to the audiobook yet? Have you gotten any pre-release? Uh... I haven't, but I'm excited. I've had the same. Uh, I love my narrator, um, uh, yeah. Mark Ramall. He has narrated some of my, um, like I, you know, he did a bunch of Flannery O'Connor, Flannery O'Connor stuff, um, which is where I first discovered him. And nice. I, really, I forget how it all worked out, but I, you know, asked them to see if he might be interested in in doing one of my books and and he was and that was uh the river of kings and then he's done all of them since then and so i love audiobooks i actually listen that's what i listen to when i'm in the car every morning i go mountain biking every morning and that's what i listen to on the way out there and the way back um and the narrator can really make or break a book. Yes. If you listen to audiobooks, you know. And there are books that actually I don't even like. I've gone to read the book and I don't like it as much as when the narrator does it, you know. And then there's books right. that I love and then the narrator, you know, the narrator somehow not the right narrator for it or somehow doesn't seem to do a good job with it. And you're just like, ah, you know, so um, I, I'm excited. I mean, that, honestly, that's one of my on publication day. One thing that I will do is go listen to part of it because that's one of the exciting things because I've never. I pro- if I asked, they probably would send me some kind of soundbite, but um, yeah. I've never asked before. It's kind of like a Christmas present thing, like getting to unwrap that box yeah. on the stuff. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. Um, Taylor, if people are just discovering you and want to, you know, dig into all the great stuff that you've been up to and dig into your back catalog and all that good stuff, where can they find you online and, and, and connect with you and follow along with the journey? They can check out my website, which is uh, www.taylorbrownfiction.com. I'm on Twitter um, at Tay Brown, one word, T-A-Y-B-R-O-W-N. I'm actually most active probably on Instagram. You get all kinds of, you know, back stuff on my life, including bicycles, motorcycles, dogs, and books, and all kinds of stuff. That's at uh, taylorbrown82. Um, well, that's where all the positive vibes are too. Yeah, yeah all, I, all the good vibes are on Instagram. Yeah, I, I don't um, I don't spend that much time on Twitter or uh, or Facebook at all these days. That Instagram is really where I um, you know if I'm yeah. online, that's where it usually is these days. You know, great. Well, Taylor, we're going to send everyone to see you and Wing Walkers releases this coming Tuesday. Go grab it. Uh, I promise you won't be disappointed. Uh, Taylor, thank you so much for joining us today in the Storycraft Cafe. Hank, thanks so much for having me. Really happy to be here and uh, really appreciate it.